0: Well, thank you very much. And uh, welcome, everybody. It's a, it's a real pleasure for me to be with you this evening. Uh, this is a momentous period in aviation and space history. Uh, turns out that tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of Scott Carpenter's flight, the second Mercury orbital flight. And I'm going off to New York to join Scott and uh, a lot of other friends. But, you know, Time moves on and a lovely place like this is where you can really learn about time and learn about history. Now, I've enjoyed having the evening with General Hudson and his colleagues to learn more about what's here, but I've realized there's one special mission that's not here. And I can tell you about it now because it's been 50 years and certain things can be released after 50 years. And it turns out that when I got in the space program, they were just getting ready for the Gemini program, which was a two-seat spacecraft. And they really didn't know how to put a crew of two together in a spacecraft. They had Mercury, and that worked okay. But, you know, often there are conflicts between people, personalities and things like that. And the shrinks get in there and start talking about, well, how do you match people up? Well, in the Mercury program, they had a lot of successes. And, of course, the first successful flight was a monkey named Ham. And then they got on to, well, they had Air Force, really great Air Force, Marines, Navy, whatever, and the Mercury program. But we got ready for Gemini. They said, gee, should we try a couple of monkeys or a couple of men? And they had this big committee meeting, even back then, and said, you know what? We should have one of each. <laughs> now, this was, it was a classified program. That's why I can tell you about it now, because it's a black program, right? So they decided that they would have a monkey, and then they would have a human. Now, to get the species as close together as possible, they had a big discussion about what human. It was easy. They picked the marine. <laughs> so... They train these two, the monkey and the Marine, and they have lights on the panel for the monkey to perform, and they have the controls for the Marine, and they get the training, and they get launched okay. They get into orbit, and the procedure is every time the spacecraft goes over mission control, well, mission control will call up to the spacecraft uh, the procedures for the next maneuver. Now, of course, the monkey can't speak, so they tell the Marine you've got to relay to the monkey. That's okay, so they come over. You know, and Marine's ready to go. The monkey's pretty cool. And they come over to MCC and they call up and says, Okay, first instructions, we want the monkey to roll the spacecraft upside down. So Marine says to the monkey and gives him a signal with the lights, and by golly, he does it perfect like that. Everybody's impressed. Comes back around. The Marine calls down, Okay, Mission Control, some Marine standing by here, Gemini X, what are my instructions? Stand by. And MCC sends up some more signals to the monkey. Says, back it up and push it forward. Monkey does it perfect. Perfect. Now, all impressed with this monkey. Spacecraft comes over, MCC again. Marine calls down. You know, Marines, (laughs) they get pretty, you know, every once in a while. Says, okay, MCC, this is Marine. I am standing by for my instructions. Marine? Marine? Stand by one. Are you ready to copy? I'm ready to copy. Feed the monkey. (laughs) So, Anyway, that's that's how we got into the Gemini program. (laughs) So what what I'd like to do this evening is walk you through some of the programs that I've been very fortunate to be part of. And it's mostly focused on Air Force and space. And I got three flights, Gemini... Apollo 9 and Apollo 15 and both 9 and 15 were all Air Force crews. On Apollo 9 and I'll explain a little bit more as we go along, Rusty Schweikert had been in the Air Force. He got out of the Air Force to go back to school and was in the Guard. So Rusty was an Air Force pilot too. So I was lucky enough to get through uh, my flights with some really good Air Force colleagues. So I'll try and give you some background Uh, some photos, and at the end of the discussion, it's open for questions, anything you want to talk about, as long as you want to go. I'll try to find the answers. We'll talk early years, flying machines, space race, my three flights, questions and discussion, and then I'll give you a few final thoughts. Lucky boy from Texas. You know, I was born at the right place at the right time, and my dad was a fighter pilot. I was born at Randolph Field uh, in 1932, and my dad pointed me through uh, my career. And the bottom right is when I got into flying school. Had four wonderful years at West Point uh, flying school, and I always wanted to sort of drive a car or be a cowboy or something like that. And that's what fighter pilots do. Flying machines, you know, when I put this story together for you tonight. I started putting in the airplanes I've been fortunate enough to fly. And, you know, again, right place, right time. And I got to fly a lot of machines. And there are a lot of machines out here that I was able to fly. And if I got into talking about the airplanes I got to fly, we would be here all night, I guarantee you. Because, again, I really had a, a wonderful career. I loved the Air Force. My dad loved the Air Force. He was in 31 years. And, you know, we're an Air Force family, and there's something about Air Force that just ru- runs well in the blood. But on flying machines in the space program, we had basically one, two, three, four, five, six kinds of flying machines. Up left is the Gemini, a two, two-man spacecraft. And then the Agena was a target vehicle or the vehicle with which we docked with the Gemini. And interestingly enough, we flew the Agena. Uh, And I'll tell you more about that, but that was a flying machine as well. In the lower left-hand side is the Apollo command and service modules, uh, the orbital vehicle. And in the center is the lunar module, the lunar lander. And it had two stages. It had a landing stage and it had an ascent stage that went back up into orbit, and on the lower right is the ascent stage. So we had some, and NASA had some pretty cool flying machines. Now let me give you a little bit of history uh, and go back to the beginnings of the space race and show you all the flights that were going on and the competition in the space race, which really drove the funding for the space race, especially for our side. If you look at the top and the bottom, there's a the competition. On the top are the US flights, on the bottom are the Soviet flights. And you can see we're all very, very close up to 1967 when we both had a major failure. We lost the crew of Apollo 1 in a fire and the Soviets lost uh, their leading test pilot, a fellow named Komarov, uh, when his chutes didn't open on the way back from a flight. I got to fly Gemini 8 in that race, and it was a great experience, but it was a close race. Then after our disasters, we both sides recovered, and we got back into the race again. On the top are the U.S. flights. I got to fly 9, and I got to fly 15, On the bottom are the Soviet flights. And you notice that just before Apollo 9, there were several unmanned and then a manned Soviet flight, And we found out years later that one of our main objectives on Apollo 9, which I'll show you, we didn't know the Soviets had beat us by three months, and we didn't even know it. So it was a a mixed bag. In the U.S., everything is open. In the Soviet Union, everything was closed. But it was a very, very close race. Take a look at Jiminy 8. I got to fly with one each, Neil Armstrong, Ohio native. Uh, a great guy, we had a good time together, he was a good leader, a wonderful pilot, and still a very, very good friend. We launched on March 16, 66, on a Titan II. People talk about uh, these days some of the launch vehicles and making them human rated so that they're safer. We launched on an ICBM and it worked pretty well. <laughs> and up in the left Center is the first picture I took in space, which is the airglow, and it is just beautiful. You see all the colors of the rainbow on the horizon as the sun comes up or sun goes down. And this is just after we launched and we got into orbit and we're going into the darkness in Africa, and I took that photo. Then we did the second rendezvous. Uh, Gemini 6 had done the first one with Gemini 7, and we rendezvoused with our Agena target vehicle. And there's a photo I took of the Agena up, upper right. And as we approached the first docking in space, uh, Neil did the first docking, and it was a, a really an exciting kind of thing, but it was really easy. I've got to tell you, it was a walk in the park. But everybody was all, you know, sort of uptight. And if you look carefully in the sort of right center, you see the cone or the funnel on the Agena vehicle has a, uh, a whisker sticking out, a, a narrow band. People thought that there would be an electrical discharge between the two spacecraft because of different potential on the launch pad, and so everybody's ready for this big spark to fly, and there were no sparks, and it was really smooth. However, we had sparks later on in that after about seven hours in flight, we had a, a thruster that uh, failed intermittently on and off. Uh, we had this big a problem, Uh And we got into a tumble with the Agena, and we had to undock from the Agena, uh, and we're off the range, the tracking range, with no communications at everybody. Uh, And I was able to fly with a guy who had a lot of experience in the X-15, and the guy figured it out. And so we got out of this problem. Uh, We had to come down early, and we landed. Uh, I'll tell you another little story about Jiminy. We used to have this competition. Who can land closest to the aircraft carrier when you come back? See? So Neil and I, we practice a lot about that. We're going to beat the other guys because they got within three miles. We can do better than that. We still hold the record, 6,000 miles. <laughs> we, we landed in the South China Sea. <laughs> and it was the secondary zone, and there was nobody there waiting for us, and they did come and get us after about three hours. And there we are in the USS Gemini, which is a wonderful spacecraft, but it's a lousy boat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another rather long story. You know, it was uh, 1966 was a pretty tense period in, the, in Southeast Asia, and uh, as a sort of aside, one of the things I always like to remember are my colleagues and my classmates and my buddies who fought my war for me. In fact, we all felt that way, that while we were doing these lovely things in space, we had a bunch of buddies over there in Southeast Asia taking good care of us, and we always appreciated it. And there are a lot of airplanes out here that participated in that conflict that were flown by a lot of my buddies. So anyway, we got through the, the uh Gemini 8 exercise, uh, and then I moved on to backup crew on Apollo 1, which lasted for about nine months, and I j- was joined by Jim McDivitt and Rusty Schweikert, and we eventually became Apollo 9. And as I mentioned, uh, Jim McDivitt was Air Force uh, Korea veteran, a great guy, a great pilot, test pilot, etc. And Rusty Schweikert was Air Force, went into the National Guard, and was getting his master's at MIT when he was selected for the program. So we were pretty much an Air Force crew. And we flew the first real test flight of Apollo hardware, spacecraft and software and computers uh, in Earth orbit. And we we were the third Apollo flight. First was Apollo 7, which checked out the command and service module. Then Apollo 8 went around the moon, a bold move that worked with the command and service module. But our mission was the first flight of the lunar module in all three stages uh, of both spacecraft. So it was what we like to call an entrepreneur's test flight. And it was just a wonderful mission. We had a great time. Ten days in orbit. We got everything done and if that we're supposed to get done, and we thought that if we had half of it done, it would be a 100% successful mission, but we got it all done. And among some of those things was uh, a lot of work with the computer. Now, I have to take you back a little bit and give you an example of what we were dealing with. And this is a computer we used to go to the moon. Uh, you can see that it was... A little, it was a box, had 36,000 words in it. That's about a page. Compared today with a mobile or cell phone, which has well over 2 billion words. So we're working with a little teeny thing in terms of capacity. But the software was brilliant. And it was a very effective device. And it was designed such that once we left Earth orbit, going to the moon, we could get back if we lost communications with the ground. So there was enough programming in there to get to the moon and get home, or if we're on a lunar surface and lost communications, we could get home. So it was a brilliant little device. On the upper left is the lunar module called Spider, because it looks like a spider. Uh, And we didn't have fancy call signs in. We just used these for radio communications, so we wouldn't be saying, hey, Apollo 9, this is Apollo 9. We had to have a call sign. And below it is a command module, command and service module. And the upper part, the command module, looks like a gumdrop because it, when it's shipped away from the factory, it's wrapped in blue cellophane. looks like it. So we called it a gumdrop. Uh, on the upper right, we did the first... Uh, extravehicular activity or the first spacewalk in the Apollo program and the objective was for Rusty to go from the lunar module to the command module in case the docking tunnel was clogged and we couldn't get through the docking tunnel so he was demonstrating this transfer and I in the bottom was in the command module and I opened the hatch so he could come in so I set everything up so he could come in So what we were going to demonstrate, we thought, for the first time in history, was a transfer. Three months earlier, the Soviets had transferred two guys. So they were running the race pretty well at that point. Then we get to Apollo 15. When I came back from Apollo 9, I was assigned as a backup crew on Apollo 12 and assigned with my two colleagues with whom I flew on Apollo 15, Al Warden and Jim Irwin. Uh, Al and Jim, both Air Force, both test pilots. Uh, they came in the class behind us. And again, I got a superior crew, really, really good guys. And we had a big mission, too. Turns out that by the time we got ready into Apollo 15, a lot of things had changed and a lot of new hardware and equipment came aboard. And our experience in the Air Force and in test pilot school, enable us to accommodate all of the new things. But one thing that we had never done before, we had to go to the moon, and we had to find uh, valuable samples scientifically to help understanding what the moon is. None of us had ever had any geology. We had, nobody even had been a rock hound, so we took a lot of geology. Uh, actually, it was rather fun. About every month we go out for three or four days to some different part of uh, mostly North America and Hawaii to study geology and learn the terminology and learn how to collect samples. And I'll show you some of the, the results. But here we are on a, on a field trip. Uh, on the left is with our favorite professor, uh, a professor from Caltech named Lee Silver, who was a marvelous guy and really taught us a lot. Jim Irwin and I, and when we trained, we simulated uh, out in the field with backpacks and cameras and radios simulating what we would be doing on the Earth. And our philosophy was do everything on the Earth that you need to do on the Moon, but do it before you get to the Moon if you possibly can. The lower is a real grand gorge. Part of our objective was to... Explore a region around a canyon or a gorge. So we were taught how to look at things and how to evaluate them. So on the 26th of July 1971, we departed uh, the Earth on a Saturn V. Uh, monster machine, lovely machine, never had a failure. There was never a loss of any Saturn launch vehicle. Werner von Braun built it, and I always thought it was. His dream. After launching a thousand V2s, he finally got his Saturn 5, and it worked. We went to this spot on the on the moon, which is sort of on the inside of the right eye of the man on the moon when you look at it at night, uh, in a an area called the Hadley Apennine, which is a rim on the rim of the largest basin on the moon, uh, the Imbrium Basin, and it's a mountainous area, and. The spot we landed, you can see in the lower left and a better picture of it on the right, and it shows the approach path over the the moon. And if you've ever had a chance to fly an approach path, this one was rather interesting. The normal angle for an airliner to come in and land is about three degrees. When we went to the moon, the earlier flights landed at an angle of about 14 degrees. But when they looked at Apollo 15, we couldn't get over the mountain at 14, so they increased our glide path to 25 degrees. And we actually flew through those mountains, and the one on the right was 15,000 feet high, and the one on the left was 9,000 feet high, and we went in between the peaks. And fortunately, the people who planned the trajectory got us at the right height at the right place. And we landed in this area near Hadley Rill, set up Falcon Base, and uh, our, our learner module's call sign was Falcon. The reason was, we're all Air Force. The Air Force Academy's mascot is a Falcon, so let us attach ourselves to the Falcon. Uh, on the right is Hadley Base with Jim Irwin saluting our flag. We're very proud to plant our flag at Hadley Base. Uh, it was a a a very nice moment, and we were very appreciative to have had the opportunity to do all these things. On the left is yours truly working with one of the scientific experiments, which was a drill. Uh, We drilled three meters into the soil to collect a sample, a core tube. Uh, On the right is yours truly working on the side of a mountain. And you can see that it's a steep slope. It was actually about 18 degrees slope. And the material on the side of the mountain is very loose and very soft. It's very difficult to work with. It's also very dirty. It's really dirty. And you get this lunar dust in everything, and it grinds on the connectors, and it permeates the material. In fact, none of the suits that came back from the moon have ever been cleaned back to pure white. They all retain a certain amount of gray. We had the lunar rover, the first lunar rover. Uh, which was another great machine, and I look at it as a flying machine. Uh, In fact, when it was designed, it was designed by a bunch of people who had airplane experience. And how do you drive on the moon? Well, the spacesuit is just too big and cumbersome. You can't put a wheel on it. So what did they put on the rover? A stick, like an airplane stick. And what did they do for we pilots to make it really easy? Well, you keep it simple. If you want to go forward, you push the stick forward. If you want to go backwards, you pull it backwards. If you want to break it, pull it backwards. If you want to go right, you tilt it right. If you want to go left, you tilt it left. So it was quite comfortable transitioning from an airplane to a lunar rover. We then got into our – let me go back and hit that one ah, – upper right. We had some interesting experiences on the moon, Jim and I. We were on the moon for three days. All the while, Al Warden was in lunar orbit by himself for three days, full of experiments. We had a big set of cameras on the, on the service module, a lot of work to do. But Al had to take care of home force around the moon for three full days, and he did a brilliant job. In the upper right, Jim and I were exploring the side of the mountain and we saw this boulder and thought, it looks a little green, we better take a look at that. So we drove up to it and because of the slope and the material uh, I hopped off and I put my tongs on the boulder to take a picture. And in the background, Jim had just hopped down to stop the rover from sliding down the hill. (laughs) And if you look at the left rear wheel, it's off the ground. (laughs) And, And the rover is very light on the moon. And that thing was starting to slide. Fortunately, Jim was quick. Jim was a great handball player, beat me all the time. So he got down there and stopped it. In the lower right, uh, or the lower left, you can see the tracks on the side of the mountain. You can see where the rover digs in. And we couldn't actually traverse the side of the mountain with two of us in a rover. Jim had to walk. I was commander. I drove, right? (laughs) Jim walked. To get across. And then there is a lunar module about the time we departed. Uh, Again, we spent three days on the moon. Uh, We had 18 hours outside and three EVAs. We went to three different areas driving our rover. And actually, it was quite a campout experience. Everything worked like it should have worked. We slept very well. We slept in hammocks. Uh, Again, because we had to be on the moon for three days, we decided that, Unlike previous crews, we would take our spacesuits off. If if we assumed the lunar module was going to keep pressure, then we had to accept that, take our spacesuits off. We slept in our underwear and hammocks and had really pretty good sleep. So it was a marvelous system. The whole system that was designed during that period was absolutely incredible. I look back and I say, you know, everything worked. But it was a wonderful culture. Few people realized that, At the peak of Apollo, there were 400,000 people working on the program. Every single one of them was part of the family, and every single one of them was dedicated. So when you get to the moon and you get going in the geology, which we really enjoyed, you forget about spacesuits and backpacks and all that stuff because you know there are 400,000 people taking care of you and watching every second. So it's a very comforting experience, and it was just a great period of time the culture that was developed. Some of the samples we found, again we had a a brilliant teacher and another part of being part of the program at that time, you got to work with the best of everybody. I mean everybody, all 400,000 people in every job were the best, Uh, totally dedicated and we learned a lot of geology and we enjoyed doing it, and it paid off at the end of the day. Uh, amongst the many samples, we brought back uh, around 130 kilo, or pounds of, of rocks and soil, one in particular that we were trained for. The moon is mostly, as you see it from the earth, volcanic. You know, there are three types of material geologically on the earth, Sedimentary material, which accumulates uh, with water deposition. Volcanic, which comes out like a volcano. And uh, igneous material, which is formed, solidifies deep in the ground. We were looking for what many people thought was the original lunar crust, which was igneous, uh, crystalline crust. Nobody had found anything like that. But lo and behold, Jim and I got to this crater on the side of the mountain, and we both spotted at the same time this brilliant little rock, uh, which was crystalline, and it was sparkling in the sun. It has what they call twinning in it. The crystals are in pairs, and they flash in the sun. And even though it was covered in dust, we knew right away we'd found what we'd come for. And we picked up this piece of anorthosite, which is 4.2 billion years old. And it was indeed... Uh, part of the original lunar crust before everything got covered uh, with volcanism. Uh, There it is back in the lab, and we were quite proud to have found it. And people say, who found it? We both found it exactly at the same time. And then we go along and we find other things. We found another rock, which looks pretty benign there in the left picture, and we picked it up. And Jim and I were always proud of having learned the terminology of geology because it's, Quite different from engineering and airplanes because you have breccias and you have basalts and you have anorthocytes and all these things. And we picked up a rock and we would take turns identifying it so our professor would be hearing us on, on the earth. And so I picked the rock up. I said, Hey, oh, it's your turn, Jim. And I'll give it to Jim. Jim looks at and he says, No, Dave, no, 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 no. It's your turn. You're commander. And I said, But Jim, you know, you've been at this a long time. He said, Dave, you're commander. It's your turn. So I said, "God, Jim, about all I can call is a green rock," and he said, "Yeah, Dave, it looks a little green to me." So we moved on quickly because we didn't have a name for that dude. And it turns out when we got back to Houston, the couple days after the flight, we went to the Lunar Receiving Lab and looked at all the samples we brought back, and we were feeling pretty, pretty good. And we get to this one big nitrogen container in which is this rock. And I tried to move past quickly and. Lee Silver, Professor Silver stopped me and says, hey, Dave, don't you want to know what that is? I thought, oh, God, I've slunk the exam again. <laughs> I said, oh, Professor Silver, what, what is it? He said, well, we've been looking at that for two days about the best we can come up with. It's a friable green clod. <laughs> and, and it turns out that 38 years later, uh, a professor researcher at Brown University has some new analysis techniques, and that's one of the beauties of progress in science. And he looked at this rock very carefully, and he looked at these little green glass spherules because the rock is composed of about 50% small green glass spherules, about a millimeter in size, and 50% soil, dirt. So these little spherules he could look in very closely, and they contain water. So we actually found water on the moon, and that's because we didn't know what this bloody green rock
1: was.
0: (laughs) And then there there were a lot of other interesting samples that we we saw. We're driving back to the lunar module after the first day, and you get caught up in what you're doing when you get out in the field like that because it's really fun, and we're behind schedule, and we keep telling mission control Hey, you know, we'd like to do no more geology. Get back to the lunar module. You're running out of time. And so we're driving back, and we'd had trouble with our seatbelt. When you drive the rover on the moon in 1.6G, it really bounces. It really bounces. So you have to have your seatbelt really, really tight. So we're driving back, and they're hustling us to get, back, to get back in the lunar module. And I looked out on the plane, which is pretty much bright gray, light gray, and I saw a single black rock, pure black with no dust on it, black, black. And I thought, oh, i got to have that baby. And I thought, they'll never let me stop. So I nudged Jim. And you know, when you work with a guy that close, that long, you have signals. And we had signals. And Jim knew that I meant I had to do something, and he should start talking. So I... (laughs) I, I called down Mission Control. I said, "Hey, uh, MCC, I got a problem with my seatbelt. I got to fix my seatbelt." And they said, "Well, okay, stop your seatbelt, but not long." So old Jim he starts talking about the geology in the near term and the far distance and the mountains and all that. Ta 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 ta. You know. So all of a sudden, as I'm fixing my seatbelt, my suit gets off of the rover and my suit goes over to this rock. <laughs> and and, and my tongs, with which I pick up rocks, my tongs stick in the ground. And I was reaching up, and my camera took a picture. So <laughs> I decided I might as well bring it back, so I put it in my pocket. I took, never said a word until I got back. And, again, going through the lunar receiving lab, all of a sudden we come up to this rock. And they called it the seatbelt basalt. <laughs> Anyway, but it was it was a great experience. We had a good time. We learned a lot, uh, and we found out that there's a lot of color on the moon. When you look at these very closely, the geologists will take what they call thin sections. They slice a very, very thin section of the rocks, and then they look at it through high-intensity light, and by golly, it's really colorful. It's really colorful. And then after our green glass on Apollo Seventeen, they found orange glass. And now they're seeing even more from some of the remote sensing. They're seeing olivine, which is green. They're seeing spinels. Actually, from the mineralogy reflectance, not the color the reflectance and the frequency, they're seeing spinel. Spinel is sort of like, well, the crown jewel of England have a, they call it the black ruby in it. It's actually a spinel. So think about that one. So anyway, there's a lot of color on the moon. There's a lot to be learned from the moon still. And finally, I thought I'd wrap up here as we got back to the lunar module on our last day, why uh, we had an opportunity to do something that we've been planning for a long time. Not very much time, but we had a chance to try something. Up, backwards, backwards. Well, what do you know about that? Forward, forward, forward. You know, it's like these automatic airplanes. Nope. There we go. And and there's a longer story behind that, why everybody tries to do something a little special when they go on these these missions that are pretty much unplanned. So being an Air Force crew, we would sit around after dinner and often discuss, you know, what can we do that would be useful, educational, scientific, and a little fun? And one of our colleagues Joe Allen, who was our our CAPCOM, who was a a physicist, came up with the idea of the hammer and the feather. Well, you have a geology hammer naturally, and the question was, yeah, let's do that, but where do we get the feather? (laughs) Easy, man. From the Air Force Academy, because the Air Force Academy mascot is a falcon. So it turns out I had an old friend from the Air Force who happened to be a professor at the Air Force Academy, and I called him up, and I said, hey, Leo, we got this problem, but we can't talk about it. We don't want anybody to know about it. So I explained what was going to happen, and about two weeks later, a contingent of, in civilian clothes from the Air Force Academy came down, and I was in my office in Houston, and the secretary called up and said, you have some visitors from the Air Force Academy. I thought, oh, really? Really? So in come these guys, they close the door, and they pull out of their pocket two Air Force Academy falcon feathers. (laughs) So on the moon is an honest-to-goodness Air Force Academy mascot falcon feather. So when people go back, they'll know. (laughs) So anyway, homeward bound, why uh, I often show the picture on the left by itself, and people say, oh, the moon. Yeah, the moon's in the foreground, but the thing in the upper part there is the earth. And when you're on the moon, depending on the phases, why you see the earth as either a full earth, as it is on the right, or a crescent earth. And this was the last picture we took before we headed back. Uh, In summer, you had three days on the surface, three days in lunar orbit, six days. We spent three other days around the moon. 170 pounds of rocks and soil, and we took 1,100 photographs on the surface, and we didn't have any iPhones. <laughs> we had a, the Hasselblad you had mounted on your chest with no rangefinder, uh, no light meter. Had to set it all manually, but after several years of practice, 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 why they came out pretty well. And finally, I like to sort of summarize with what we learned and the benefits of Apollo. National prestige, we won the space race. Uh, The Soviets finally gave up, even though they had a lunar module, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, Technological progress, the architecture, all the spacecraft and the software we put together. Human space operations, how do you operate in space? It's quite different from operating in the air because it's a whole other dimension, and there's another level of risk, but we know how to operate in space now. Management expertise, as I mentioned we had 400,000 people managed by an absolutely superior group of managers to get all that stuff to the Cape at the same time, get it all checked out and put it aboard and have it launched on time. We launched on time almost every mention. Uh, scientific return, we now have consensus on how the moon was formed in that apparently the Earth in its early years was hit by an object the size of Mars and all the debris, the material flew out into an orbit. It accreted together, that created the moon. So the moon is actually part Earth and part something else, whatever hit it. Uh, Educational spin-offs, as you know, you know, young people love to learn about this, love to talk about this, love to fly airplanes. And I think that's one of the great benefits of Apollo. And then finally, spinoffs, all the things that came out of the program that we use now. A lot of things were enhanced. Uh, Velcro, we used a lot of it. And, of course, one of the more memorable items that came out of the space program that got a lot of promotion was Tang. <laughs> you know, after 12 days, you really get tired of Tang. Tang. <laughs> So now I'd like to open it for questions and discussion. Feel free to ask uh, anything you'd like, and I'll give you an answer of sorts. But uh, I've enjoyed your participation so far, and maybe we can have some fun with some of the answers. Okay?
1: We're
0: gonna have, are you got oh. a mic, mic? on? Okay. I, I got a mic. They got a mic. Good. Somebody's going to, so we know who, what the question is.
2: Okay. So you're collecting the questions now, correct? Okay. So why they collect those, um, I actually have one that we can get started on. Okay. Um, I was intrigued in your book about a story that you mentioned uh, about meeting with some cosmonauts. <laughs> actually, before, um, the, like back in the mid-'60s, uh, I didn't realize that there had been any interaction at all between the two groups and, and being part of the Cold War like that. Can you tell me what that encounter was like?
0: Yeah, it was Yeah, quite an experience. Uh, I got to know quite a few cosmonauts over the years. But uh, in 1967 I'd flown uh, Jiminy 8, Mike Collins had flown Jiminy 10, Mike Collins Air Force. Mike and I were good friends and somehow we got selected to represent the US at the Paris Air Show in 1967 and uh, that's great. And we got briefed by the State Department. It was a big display, and it was going to be the first time the Soviet Union showed anything. It was the first time they showed their launch vehicle. They were going to have a big pavilion and a lot of attention. So we get this briefing by the State Department that says, okay, you guys, be careful, because they'll do it to you, you give them one chance. Don't meet with them. Don't talk to them. Stay away from these guys. So, you know, State Department and a couple of Air Force captains and all that stuff. Yes, sir. So we get to the Paris Air Show and, I mean, it's it's quite a scene. And, of course, they have their pavilion. We have our pavilion and we're told. And But Mike and I are sitting there thinking, you know, boy, I'd sure like to meet those guys because they're fighter pilots too. And there's a bond, you know, fighter pilots just get together. So somebody told us that Friday afternoon, uh, if we happen to go to the Soviet pavilion, The cosmonauts might just happen to be there. (laughs) So Mike and I, we sort of winked at each other and said, shoot, let's do it. So we went over, and by golly, they were there. Uh, Fyltislaw, who had flown and was one of their leading engineers, and Belyaev, who was an Air Force colonel, met us when we walked in. uh, Belyaev had his uniform on, all his stuff, and, of course, by that time, Every photographer in Paris had heard about this, and it was the first time in public displays that an astronauts and cosmonauts would meet at the height of the Cold War space race. So they figured there'd be some real fireworks. Well, turns out there were, but it was a different kind. We were surrounded by these mobs of photographers, and Bolyaliev took charge and in Russian said, move out of the way. And he led through this mob of people out to the ramp, and they had one of their transports out there all set up inside. We went inside, they closed the doors and the fireworks were vodka. Lots and lots and lots of vodka. So we, we had a good time, they're really good guys. We got back and they found out and man, we got debriefed like you wouldn't ma- imagine. It was a great experience.
2: Uh, What experiences and skills did you gain in U.S. Air Force flight test uh, as a test pilot that directly benefited your astronaut career?
0: Oh, I think the test pilot school, the thing I really learned that I recall is precision, precision, precision. Whenever you do something, do the absolute best you can every time. Every time has got to be the best. Because they watch it closely there, they grade you closely there, and I learned that rather than fly plus or minus three to five knots in airspeed, plus or minus a half to a quarter. And I think I learned precision and also how to accommodate new, new aircraft and, new, and, and uh, new vehicles and new hardware. But I liked it. It was a great experience.
2: What power source powered the Lunar Rover?
0: Lunar Rover was battery operated, uh, and it was battery charged. It was, uh, had solar panels on top of the battery. When we drove it, we had a flap over it to keep the dust off of them. Then we opened the flap, and it would recharge the battery uh, during nighttime. When you're on the moon, you don't have any nighttime. It's 14 Earth days of daylight, but you have to close things down to have nighttime. And the rover was another brilliant piece of engineering. In fact, we left the instructions and the keys on the seat, and who goes back can open the flap, charge the battery, and it can drive off, it'll work.
2: Are the feelings and impressions you had when you first stepped on the moon just as fresh today as when they first happened? Can you share some of them with us?
0: Well, you know, time sorted the loose things. It was really exciting. It's a fantastic place, especially when you study it uh, and when you get there. It's just a wonderful experience. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I have been asked that question every once in a while. And they say, uh, people say, well, do you dream about being on the moon? My answer is only in the daytime.
2: (laughs) Uh, What is your take on the SpaceX Falcon? SpaceX
0: Falcon, I congratulate them on a successful flight. Good for them. Uh, They're doing some things that haven't been done before. Uh, I've been to their facility a couple of times. It is a a very impressive facility, Uh, but they have a long way to go. Space is hard. Space is very difficult, and I think they've made some great progress. I hope they make a lot more progress. Uh, I look forward to seeing uh, how things go in the future, if they can achieve all the things they're shooting for. If so, that's terrific.
2: Uh, the Falcon landed at a significant angle from the level. Did it settle after touchdown, and did this angle pose a challenge at takeoff, lunar takeoff?
0: Huh. Yeah, it landed at an angle because I had one foot pad in a crater. <laughs>
1: well,
0: one of the problems in landing on the moon is at about 100 feet. <coughs> hey, first thing is, There are no markers, there are no scaling, and craters are large, small, shallow, deep, rough, smooth, whatever. And you have to find a place that's relatively smooth. So I found this place, and you have to put it down. You don't have enough fuel to hang around very long, a minute or so, so you have to find a spot and land. And when you get to 100 feet from the ground, you get dust. So you have to go IFR, you have to go in the gauges. And I drifted a little bit, and I put a foot pad uh, into a crater. Didn't bother anything. uh, Didn't hurt the machine. Didn't bother us sleeping or eating. And on takeoff, no problem because, I don't know, we were something like six or seven degrees, and you could actually land if you were going slowly uh, at 25 degrees. So you could take off at a 25-degree angle, and the the ascent stage would work just fine.
2: Uh, Several people had a question about your Hollywood experience and working as a technical advisor to several (laughs) different uh, movies, and they wonder um, what it was like. Did they accept you as a technical advisor? Do you think they really understood space flight? Uh,
0: Well, that was another another break. You know, I've been so fortunate uh, to meet the right people and fly the right machines at the right time. I, I was living in California in Manhattan Beach, <clears throat> and I got a phone call one day from Jim Lovell, commander of Apollo 13, who's a good friend. And he rings up and he says, "Hey, Dave, how you doing? Fine, Jim." He says, "You know, I just finished a book." I said, "Yeah, right, Jim. Really good going." I hadn't read it yet. He <laughs> said, <laughs> and he said, "I knew his story. I've been there. I knew his story." Anyway, so. <laughs> so he said. You know, I'm on a book tour, and these guys out in Hollywood want to make a movie about Apollo 13. Would you go talk to them and help them out? I said, oh, yeah, I'd be glad to, Jim. That's fine. That's fine. He says, well, if it's okay with you, I'll have the director call you uh, directly. I said, It's fine. He said, in about five minutes? I said, I'll be here, Jim. He says, okay. Five minutes later, phone rings. I pick it up. I say, Dave Scott, hi, Dave. It's Ron Howard. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Howard, sir. (laughs) He said, oh, Jim says you'll help us with the movie. Can you come over to the set tomorrow? I said, yeah. Yes, sir. (laughs) So I go over to the set next day, and Ron Howard and Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon and Gary Sinise and Bill Paxson all sitting around, and they say, hey, we're going to make this movie on Apollo 13. How do you go to the moon? (laughs) So anyway, it's a, a wonderful experience. They're wonderful people. We spent a lot of time. I worked on the script, the actors, the set, the locations, the whole, the editing, everything. And I became very good friends. They became good friends. We got to know each other. It took seven months to film, and they're really, really great guys. I mean, Tom Hanks is an absolute prince. He loves space. He loves the military. Uh, He's got, there's a, on the web, there's the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. If you haven't seen it, it's marvelous. And Tom's got everything printed out in white notebooks in his office on his shelf. And from that experience, about another six months later, Hanks calls up and says, how about lunch? Went to lunch. He says, we're going to do Earth to the Moon series. Would you be technical advisor? I said, you bet. Yeah. Absolutely. So I did the 10 series with them. And I tell you, it was re- they work really hard. Uh, they're very serious, that group. I used to think Hollywood was, you know, three martini lunches. No way. You know, they're 14-hour days, and they work hard, and they did a great job. And the accuracy of those films is just marvelous. They, They go to everybody did. It's another family. It's another culture. They wanted to know exactly what the digits on the computer said when Neil Armstrong was a minute from touchdown, not what the computer looked like. What did the digits say? I mean, they are really precise. So it was a great experience and another wonderful, uh, wonderful family.
2: Uh, what, was, what, uh, what did you have the most fun doing? What, um, you know, in your Air Force career or NASA, what, what would you say you had the most fun at?
0: I had that the other night at dinner, actually, and today. <laughs> Flying the F-86. That was the most fun for me. I was a fighter pilot. I was stationed in Holland. We had a single Air Force squadron under the operational control of the Dutch Air Force, so we flew by Dutch rules, Uh, a marvelous experience, and uh, a lovely airplane. And I I look back, which airplane was the most fun for me? It was the F-86, the Sabre, the Korean veteran airplane, and it's the last one that really, really sort of danced. It was just a, you know, but all my... My breaks, my lucky breaks, I'll tell you, I've had a good time. Been, been a wonderful career, and it's neat to be here in this lovely place and look at all these airplanes. I, my, as I mentioned, my dad was a fighter pilot, so today we went out, and uh, Ray Morrison took me around, showed me the airplanes my dad flew. That's really cool, huh? So, you know, this is a lovely place, and I encourage everybody to come back. I could spend weeks in this place. And one of the nice things I see you do now is in front of the airplanes, the displays, you have the story behind the airplane, that particular airplane or that type airplane, on what it did and who flew it, which I think is really great, something to learn.
2: We didn't even have to pay you to say all that, that's cool. oh, but <laughs> thank <you. laughs> How were the orbital pilots picked, um, the ones that you know stayed in orbit around the moon? Were they um, psychologically tested for that or did they just draw the short straw?
0: You know, well, uh, (laughs) in our day, there was no big deal about all this psychology stuff. I mean, it was, yeah, it was there, but everybody got along, especially in flight. And I think you find that in the Air Force, too, when, when teams go out in combat. You know, it's a team work. The personalities disappear, don't they, Jack? They disappear. You work as a team. I have a, a good friend of mine, one of my classmates, uh, who was on one of the missions in Vietnam flying an F-105. He's a close friend. In fact, he, he wrote the book called 100 Missions North, Ken Bell. He was the wingman, and the leader took him into the hottest spot, uh, got all shot up, got back home, leader got the Congressional Medal of Honor, and Ken got uh, the Silver Star. The Air Force Cross. He got the Air Force Cross. So. They worked as a team, and the leader leads the team, and the team sticks together. In the same way, in space, we were selected uh, by NASA as a group. When we got into NASA, there were no there were no tests, no exams. Once you got in, you're in. But everybody watched the performance. Everything was open, and our boss, Dick Slayton, former Air Force, would. Select the crews and then pass them up to management because management always gets uh, the last voice and approves the crews. And how people get selected was somewhat of a mystery, which was a good idea. Because what we all learned early on, you compete as hard as you can in everything. You do everything you can do in everything you do the best. So, shoot, I used to go play handball a lot a lot with Mike Collins. He beat me every time. I couldn't beat that guy. But I worked as hard as I could to beat him. Not anything acrimonious. And you wouldn't hurt the other guy, but the competition was there. And then everybody watched the performance. And when we had simulations, there was a closed-circuit TV throughout senior management, and they could watch our performance. So by the time it got to selecting crews, Beek would make a list based on his assessment of performance, management would approve it, and away you went. And you just sort of... Luck of the draw, in a sense, but no grades, although there was one time that we did a peer rating. I always like to think back on this one. Uh, By the time I got there, I was in the third group of 14, and there were 30 astronauts. And Beat got everybody in the big conference room one day and said, okay, guys, we need to do a peer rating now to see how you rate each other. And we want each of you to select the first lunar landing crew, three. So here's a piece of paper. It will only come to me. I will destroy them after I look at them. But I want you to put on that piece of paper for the three-man crew two names. I know you'll pick yourself.
2: (laughs) Um, In your book, you talk about a lot of uh, close calls that you had. Throughout your career, and um, and including being the backup for Apollo 1, um, we're we're wondering: um, did the fact that you cheated death it seems so many times make the the whole moon trip um, less uh, dangerous <laughs> feeling to you? Or you had you cheated death enough that you weren't worried at all?
0: Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it really cheating death. I call it proper training and understanding where you are and what you do and keeping cool and that sort of thing. And I, had in my era, airplanes, there were a lot of problems with new airplanes. They were pushing fast, post-World War II, get them out there, and a lot of times they didn't have as much uh, preconditioning, if you will. So we had problems, and I had problems like everybody else had problems, and you learn to work through the problems. And I think experience gives you a situation in which you can handle Difficult chores, and it's a good question because a lot of people are talking about uh, new astronauts and where do you get new astronauts? Are they civilian astronauts or military astronauts or whatever? And I, I have a relatively strong opinion on that because of my colleagues and the guys I flew with. Another thing that Deke used to say, if you get put on a crew and you don't want to fly with one of those people, don't fly with them, you know? And that's the way it is. You have to trust the other person, you have to trust their judgment and their experience, because it's an unforgiving thing. Space airplanes are unforgiving. You know, aviation is like the sea. You know, it's terribly unforgiving of any carelessness neglect. So you gotta pay attention to things, and I think part of my experiences that helped me go to the moon were the problems I had with airplanes, follow the procedures. Listen to your lead or your wingman or the ground uh, and just pick the right path. And then you get used to it and you say, you go to the moon, you say, I got these 400,000 people. If I get in a situation which uh, I can't handle and I need some help, I'll call them. And they're going to give me some help. So you get that comfort zone.
2: Do you think that enough is done to inspire the next generation of explorers? And is there anything else you think that we should be doing?
0: Well, it's the first part of it.
2: Do you think that enough is done to inspire the next generation uh, of explorers?
0: (laughs) That's a no. (laughs) 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 (coughs) You know, I, I, I think you need a place like this. That's why it's such a wonderful place. You need to show the young people what's there and what they can do and their challenges and their opportunities. in I don't think this country does enough of that. I try to do what I can do. I, You know, I've been invited back to lecture at uh, MIT and Brown. I lecture the, the grad students and have an opportunity with the young people and things like that. So I think that this country needs to do more and actually – one of the best things this country can do is go back to the moon. Huh?
2: Okay, I was told to make this the last question. Um, someone wants to know how difficult it was to adjust to life on Earth after having been on the moon.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> Actually, I, I, I found it relatively straightforward. It was a, a recycling. Uh, however, it, there was one interesting Aspect of that, Uh, physiologically, physically, you know, you adapt. We're only there 12 days, you know, and that's not a long time. So physically, we got back pretty quickly. Uh, Adjusting to all the falderal, that was a little more difficult. And not having time to rest was one of our our main problems. On the first three missions uh, that came back, 11, 12, and 14, the crews were quarantined for a couple of weeks because of, potential microorganisms and bugs and stuff like that. They found out there is nothing on the moon. On Apollo 15, they scrubbed the quarantine. We didn't have a quarantine. And I actually wanted one so we could power down. You go full tilt for 12 days. I mean, we went full tilt for 12 days. You need a break time. And we got back. In fact, I tried to get Slayton to give us something. He said, no, no, you guys are, take off, do your thing, come back and do a debriefing during the day. So first night I was home, got back, one of the neighbors wanted to have a party. (laughs) Man, I'll tell you, that is not exactly what I wanted, but they were great neighbors. So we had the parties. But that that kind of sort of adjustment was tough because so many things are going on and you really want to focus, write your reports, and do all that. But, yeah, we all adjusted. We got past it all right. A couple final thoughts. One is, she mentioned the book. I, I did have an opportunity to uh, write a book. And, and I'll leave you with a little story on the book. I met Alexei Leonov, uh, who did the first spacewalk. I met him in 1973. When I got through flying Apollo 15, I was assigned to the Apollo Soyuz test project a special special assistant for mission operations, and I took the first group of, big group of engineers to Moscow for the first technical negotiations after the political stuff was finished. I took 35 engineers to Moscow for for three weeks. My host on the weekends, because I had flown, my host on the weekends was Alexei Leonov, whom I had never met, but I sure knew who he was. And so on the first weekend, they took us, on these rickety old <laughs> Russian buses down to uh, Kaluga, the birthplace of Tsiolkovsky, their father of rocketry, and I met Alexei on the bus. Now, this is the Soviet Union still, and everything's still secret. Before we went, we were brief, don't say anything to anybody. They bugged the rooms and all that stuff, and I figured, you know, this is really cloak and drag or black stuff, and I wonder how Alexei will be because the other guys had been pretty good once we got to the vodka. But (laughs) we we were on his bus in early morning heading down south. So we got to talking and and his English is pretty good. My Russian was pretty nil. So we're sitting talking about experiences and things like this. And I find out that uh, when I was an F-86 pilot in Western Europe, he was a MiG-15 pilot in Eastern Europe. Another interesting part of our, our lives together. And then he looks over at me and he has a twinkle in his eye. Alexei always has a twinkle. He's a a really neat guy. He says, do do you mind if I tell you a political joke? I thought, God, and and the Soviet Union? Okay, fine. We do political jokes all the time. He says, well, he says, we're just passing the town of Borodino. And he says, if you recall from your history why at Borodino, We Russians turned back the Germans in dead of winter. I said, yeah, I remember that one. And he says, not too far from there, we turned back Hitler in the dead of winter. I said, yeah, I remember that one, too. Wouldn't want to fuss with you guys in the dead of winter. And he says, well, he says, we know that you Americans are advising the Israelis. And you probably know that we are advising the Egyptians. I thought, yeah, well, I did know that. He says, not too long ago, the Egyptians came to us and said, you know, what if the Israelis attack again? What do you think we should do? And Alexei says, told him, it's easy. Fall back to Cairo and wait for winter. <laughs> but he, he's a great guy, and we still keep in touch and all that stuff, and you know it's a bond, fighter pilots and fighter pilots get together, political things are important but you get together with your own kind and your own culture, it doesn't matter the language, you know, you can talk and you can even if you just do an airplane thing, it's really a really great experience. And then finally, looking back, way back, Socrates said, man must rise above the earth to the top of the atmosphere and beyond for only then will he fully understand the world in which he lives. Well, 2300 years later, Congress had a hearing about Apollo and what was the significance of Apollo. And one of the gentlemen at the hearing was a fellow named Norman Cousins, who was the editor of the Saturday Review. And he reflected on the significance of Apollo, it was not so much that man set foot on the moon, but that he set eye on the earth. And I think the message is we have to take care of the earth. And it's very, very important. We're not doing a good job. And I hope all of you think about that and think about taking care of our good earth. Thank you very much. (laughs) Okay, okay.
3: Okay, Um, wow, well, um, I just want to say a few things here. First off, uh, how appropriate was your comments about uh, uh, those who fought and especially those who uh, sacrificed so much in uh, Southeast Asia? Uh, Memorial Day is coming up and uh, I'm going to ask all of you, please keep in mind all of our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, our civil servants and um, support contractors as well who are over in the Middle East. many of whom are uh, in harm's way. They're doing a great job for us, and uh, many of them have uh, sacrificed much, lost lives and limbs and otherwise. So let's keep all of them in our thoughts and prayers and their family as well. So thanks again for uh, mentioning that. Um, okay, first off, uh, to you, Colonel Colonel Scott, sir, thank you for your service to our nation uh, and for all you have done uh, during your career to do all the things you talked about here, both as an Air Force officer and otherwise. um, We really appreciate you being here tonight. And uh, given our mission here of telling the Air Force story to the public and inspiring, motivating, and educating our youth toward uh, the Air Force and toward science and technology and engineering and math, you have really helped us along the way here. So thank you very much. I do. we have lots more coming uh, downstream for the museum here, uh, more airplane acquisitions as we talked about, that new building coming. Uh, you may have seen the mock-up in the uh, atrium on the way in. And lots of other things coming downstream with a tattoo and a marathon and all that. Um, I have. Would you mind answering one more question? We got you. you. That? Okay, here it is. Um, what advice would you give to a young uh, 14-year-old, uh, a young man or a young lady who – thinks that he or she is inspired towards space or toward uh, the science, technology, engineering, and math, or maybe toward the Air Force, what advice would you give them as they're going through high school and beyond? What would you tell them?
0: Well, first thing I'd say is find something you really like to do and really want to do, and then do the best you can every day in every way. Perform yourself as high as you can, because... If you maintain your top performance in everything, that will be your standard, and you want your standard to be top. Don't figure that, oh, I can coast through this or coast through that. Hit it hard every day. So pick what you like, study, 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 but do the best you can every, every single day. We used to have, not to divert, but, you know, landings, and I know you did this too. When, When I was first in the squadron, We had a little mobile control out by the runway to make sure everybody had their gear down. And there was one guy in mobile, one pilot and more. He scored every landing and he put it on the bulletin board in ops. And he came in, and every day you had to make your best landing. So I'd say, every day, make your best landing.
3: Yep. Thank you. I, th- I think that fits in real well with the comments you made about leadership and teamwork uh, earlier. So uh, thank you very much. Well, um, we have uh, one of our uh, presenters here for you. And I want read to all of you here the inscription uh, that's on here. Uh, presented to Colonel David Scott, United States Air Force Retired, National Museum of the United States Air Force, uh, 22 May uh, 2012. You know, um, we worked... Uh, uh, quite a while to uh, extend the invite to Colonel Scott, and he was uh, gracious enough to come uh, be with us here. Um, tomorrow you have, I think, two engagements uh, out east of here and another one the next day, so uh, we'll close up here in uh, just a minute and uh, let you get uh, squared away to uh, depart tomorrow. But on behalf of all of us here, all the staff at the museum, our 500 and some volunteers, the cleaning crew and everybody else that supports us here and helps us uh, accomplish the mission here. Once again, thank you for your service to our nation, and thank you for being our guest here tonight. And all the best to you in the future. Best to you, too. Oh, man, that's really cool. We can ship this, too. Okay. Oh, man, that's wonderful.
0: That's that's really good, huh? That that is very good. Thank thank you very much. Wow. Wow, treasure that dude. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Flying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. Good. Uh, we're going to ask if everybody oh, can remain really cool, seated man. for a few minutes um, until Colonel Scott is...